Welcome to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny and either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. And my guest today is Ben Cohen, a friend and a hero of mine. Ben is best known for having started Ben and Jerry's. 1978 in Burlington, Vermont, on a $12,000 investment, built it into an incredibly successful company. Uh, and it was also a socially conscious company, as it still is, I believe. And he made sure that the employees were treated right, that a substantial percentage of profits went to their foundation, and all of the ingredients in Ben and Jerry's were uh, organic, wholesome, didn't, didn't hurt animals, and did the right thing. He also became a cultural icon in part because of his marking brilliance, creating flavors such as Cherry Garcia, Fish Food, and Wavy Gravy, and has been very, very involved in socially conscious leadership. Hundreds of small companies have taken their cues from Ben on how to, how to run socially conscious companies, and he's also been an activist involved with trying to shift federal spending away from the military into domestic concerns. In recent years, he's created Stamp Stampede, which has to do with getting money out of politics, and he's gonna talk more about that later. According to Wikipedia, he is either a hippie or an ex-hippie and a notable fan of the Grateful Dead. So, knowing how accurate Wikipedia is, Ben, tell, tell me about the values that really kind of formed you uh, so that when Ben and Jerry springs to life, it stands for all of these things. Where did that come from? You know, I think uh, <clears throat> the values are essentially about peace and love. Uh, and and I guess justice and equality. And, you know, you might call them hippie values, uh, you can also call them the values of Jesus. So, uh, you know, you can look at me, I guess, as uh, a hippie or uh, a Jesus freak without the religion thrown in. Um, I saw you a, a, a few weeks ago, and, and you had said that although you've been raised Jewish in Bar Mitzvah, you didn't have a particularly deep spiritual connection to, to that. What was it in your teenage years and early 20s that really made made your values so, so vivid? Because although they are certainly consistent with Christian traditions and the ideals that we read about in religions, they're not that vivid in the behavior of most business people. Yeah. Uh... Well, I think that uh, the problem is that people profess to believe in these things and that uh, kindness and compassion are important to them, but they tend to uh, only 
Well, they talk about it a lot on Saturday and Sunday in church or temple or mosque, but, you know, somehow when they get into the real world, uh, there's this belief that, uh, well, it's not really possible to integrate uh, those values uh, into business or into the way we interact with each other. And that was really what Ben and Jerry's was about, was uh, an experiment to see if we could use business, uh, something which has traditionally caused a lot of problems, as a tool for progressive social change. And, you know, at the very beginning, when we started embarking on that path, we thought we were going to, we thought the odds were we were going to fail. Because, now you started with just a single ice cream shop in Burlington, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we were actually uh, about 27 when we started uh, the, a homemade ice cream parlor in an old converted gas station in Burlington, Vermont. And our uh, intention, we didn't have any intentions at that point to be anything beyond that single homemade ice cream parlor so in that context what was social what did social consciousness mean uh in that context it meant uh treating our employees fairly uh it meant uh doing as much as we could for the community and uh the way we did it at that time was to hold free community celebrations uh, every year, which were uh, kind of, oh, like like community-wide picnics, uh, where there would be relay races and stilt walking contests and uh, uh, three-legged races, wheelbarrow races, ice cream eating contests. We partnered with the bagel place next door. We made the world's biggest bagel. And, uh, you know, we, of course, donated a bunch of money to different community organizations. We donated a bunch of ice cream. Uh, we started uh, free walk-in movies uh, that we would show outside. People would bring their own chair. And uh, that, was, that was what our community involvement was at that time. I mean, it's, it's interesting that uh you know those seem like little things but as a percentage of of our business of the size of our business and as a percentage of the money we were taking in and the profit we were making which was nothing uh it was huge so what was it in your younger years that inspired you because because again it doesn't you seem to have had an ordinary high school ordinary religions i know you're born in 51 i was born in 1950 these thing called the 60s did happen what elements of that complex group of things that we call the 60s had, had inspired you and jerry to, to to give you this attitude or did you just always have this attitude well i think uh you know when i went to jewish school which was uh kind of non-denominational uh, i mean non-religious um they focused a lot on how the Jews had been oppressed 
and discriminated against. And uh, I, uh, you know, of course, generalized that to uh, the oppression of, 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 of anybody. And uh, I mean, I didn't experience uh, discrimination myself, uh, but I really felt like uh, black people were exactly in the same situation that Jews were in, and uh, that it was important to uh, address that issue. Um, and uh, I think another thing that was very formative for me was that I, I lived on Long Island, and uh, sometimes my family would drive in the car into New York City, and we'd come over the uh, Triborough Bridge, and it would let you out on uh, 125th Street, which was the dividing line between uh, the well-to-do white neighborhood and the what was a slum of Harlem at that time, which was all black. And it just didn't seem right. It didn't seem fair to me. Uh, I became very conscious that uh, you either had advantages in life or didn't have them based on where you happened to be born. Um, and that was uh, very meaningful to me. The other thing that, uh, you know, kind of struck me early on in elementary school uh, was uh, the idea of this cold war between the Soviet Union and the US that was sapping the, the wealth of, of both countries, using it to build weapons which were designed never to be used. And, uh, and so you had I had this image in my mind of uh, these two countries w with this facade of these shiny, high-tech, huge pile of weapons, and behind them was the people in those countries that were suffering uh, in poverty and, uh, you know, from other things that if we had just used that money from the weapons, uh, we could meet the needs of those people. So to just flash forward to, to the growth of Ben and Jerry's for a minute, you're, it starts as this one shop. Somehow over the decade, people love the ice cream. The marketing you're doing is fun and, and connecting with people and you're able to grow the business. And to, and to grow a business, I know, requires such concentration on money, on details, uh, on things like marketing, on the product. Um, what were the challenges and what do you tell business people who come to you for advice as they're growing a business and that consuming pressure is on them of, of how to be successful and at the same time maintain sort of those ideals as it becomes a bigger business? Are there any examples or things you can share with people about how to do that? Because it, it, it is looked at as one of the landmark accomplishments of, of Ben & Jerry's. Well, um, you know, we ended up starting in Burlington, Vermont, because uh, we were looking to locate in a rural college town, because that was the 
type of lifestyle we wanted to lead. And uh, originally, we were searching for a warm rural college town because we thought ice cream would sell better in a warm place. <clears throat> but we researched it, and it turned out that every all the warm ones already had ice cream shops. So we didn't want to uh, compete. So we we ended up settling on Burlington, Vermont, because it didn't really have any ice cream shops and... Uh, you know, later we learned that that was because it was so so cold. It was close to the Canadian border, but uh, you know, we did open there. So I mean, that was one key was finding a void in the marketplace and locating in Vermont. We didn't really realize it at the time, but uh, we were able to be a big fish in a small pond. Vermont is very uh, lightly populated. And uh, also, uh, it happens to be a dairy state. It has this mm -hmm. image of uh, cows and green fields. And, and that helped us as well. And, um, you know, we, we ended up going into the wholesale business because uh, during the wintertime, uh, there weren't uh, enough customers that were willing to buy an ice cream cone and uh, lick it on the street in sub-zero temperatures. So we, to try to just to stay alive, we started uh, selling ice cream to uh, restaurants in tubs. And uh, then we found that, you know, the distribution costs of getting it to the restaurants were killing us. And in a last-ditch effort to survive, we decided to pack the ice cream in pint containers and sell it to the small mom and pop stores that we were passing on the way to the restaurants and that's what turned the corner for the business you know at the time uh you know haagen had uh you know was the first ever super premium ice cream packed in pine containers and it was a made-up name from a guy in the who lived who had a manufacturing operation in uh, the bronx in new york city uh, and other ice cream companies saw that he was being successful, and so they figured that the way to do it was to make believe he came from a foreign country. So all these U.S. ice cream manufacturers came out with brands like Alpenzauber, La Glace de Paris, Perquet No, <laughs> and uh, and you know, and and into that came Ben and Jerry's. Uh, using an honest uh uh mark you know doing honest marketing that right. was, what you see is what you get yeah that was the real breakthrough and that set us apart from all the rest and as you know all the rest no longer exists and right. ben and jerry's does um you know i think in terms of factoring in uh social benefits to how you run a business uh, the key is to make that uh, the mission of the business uh, co-equal with uh, making a profit and uh, and turning out the highest quality product. Uh, so it it needs to start at the very top in terms of the mission, and and once you identify that and say that the 
the purpose of my company is to meet social needs, then the idea is to factor that into every business decision that you make. Uh, just as a you know a regular business factors in price and quality to their decision making we just add a third variable which is price quality and impact on the community positive or negative so at one point you were um we're starting to use the packaging uh for certain causes you you had farm aid was on your was on your packages is that right and you did things for the Children's Defense Fund. How did, how did you pick those causes? They all did have kind of a progressive tinge to them. And, and um, th did people come to you? Did you just pick things that you believed in? What was what was that process like? Um, I think in the beginning, uh, we were picking things that uh, Jerry and I believed in. Um, and that was the case with uh, definitely with Farm Aid. And then, you know, there was another product that came out called the Peace Pop, where we were advocating shifting 1% of, of the Defense Department budget to peace through understanding activities. Um, so, you know, the, the, uh, the Peace Pop ended up being very controversial within the company because uh, as opposed to, you know, trying to raise money or generate membership for Farm Aid or the Children's Defense Fund, the Peace Pop was taking a stand on national policy, which, uh, you know, people inside the company were, were calling political. And uh, they were saying that business uh, business should not take political stance. So how did this manifest? People came into your office and complained or there was a big company meeting. You got letters. And how did you respond to it and motivate people, even if they didn't agree with that decision? Well, the interesting thing is that it was mostly controversial inside the company before before we did it when we were considering it and there were huge uh debates at at the board of directors level and upper level management uh but once and and the the specter of uh having this product on the shelves and the supermarkets and having uh right-wing organizations picketing the supermarkets and then forcing the product off the shelves was raised and um once we came out with the product, uh, there really wasn't, uh, you know, any any problems to any extent. You know, there might have been uh, maybe one supermarket that said, we don't want to carry this product. But in general, uh, there was huge public support and there was a lot of newspaper articles that were written about it because uh, – businesses didn't do that sort of thing it was it was a first and uh you know since that time you know we did it and there were no adverse effects as a matter of fact i would it's generally believed now that it had a positive effect on building ben and jerry's brand creating a point of difference 
And, uh, you know, actually, I mean, this idea of, of peace, peace through understanding, uh, building bonds of friendship between the people of different countries, you know, that's something that in general, the majority of the population uh, agrees with. Yeah. So at some point, um, I know you got involved with Bernie Glassman and uh, became the significant catalyst to the growth of the Grayston Bakery. And to me, that's that's just one of the most amazing examples of the combination of kind of uh, social activism, spirituality, helping people and uh, and, and business. Uh, could, could you tell that story? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, Bernie uh, was the leader of a Buddhist community in New York City. And uh, and he, uh, you know, at the time, the general I the general feeling about Buddhism from within Buddhism was that you weren't really supposed to be uh, involved in the world that you you were not really supposed to be working in the you weren't supposed to be involved in in business you weren't supposed to be involved in uh well uh, in business essentially well or even in social action really it was more of an inner path as opposed to an external service path is that correct exactly and so Bernie Glassman was this uh, former Jewish nuclear physicist who had become the leader of this uh, Buddhist community. And he had this idea that the Buddhist community should be active in the world, active in the community, solving social problems, and that uh, it should have a business which would generate money to support those activities and at the same time uh, use that business as a way to help formerly unemployable people. Right. So he started a, he would get people that had been on welfare or coming out of jail, people whose resumes made them unemployable in terms of the normal application to most businesses. Is that right? Exactly. So he was getting a lot of criticism and derision from the general Buddhist community for engaging in these worldly activities. And I was getting a lot of derision from the mainstream business community for engaging in socially beneficial activities. And we met at uh, the at one of the early meetings of the Social Ventures Network, which was uh, an organization that was built in order to uh, foster more socially beneficial business activities. So Bernie and I happened to be walking around this lake, and uh, I you know, he, he mentioned that, you know, he had started this bakery. And I say, well, that's that's really interesting because we are just opening a, a plant, a manufacturing plant 
uh, to make uh, an item called uh, brownie, a brownie ice cream sandwich, a Ben and Jerry's bar. And it utilized two very thin, chewy brownies uh, with a slab of vanilla ice cream in the middle. And uh, we had one supplier for these particular brownies, and uh, we needed a secondary supplier because we needed the plant to remain in operation if there was a problem with the the first supplier. And I said, well, you know, Bernie, you're, you're doing this great thing uh, with the community, helping to employ formerly unemployable people. It would be great if you could become our secondary supplier. And he said, no problem. I can do that. And, uh, you know, so I had solved my problem. He had found himself a, a customer and I, uh, you know, we, you know, he told me that, that he had a big bakery. He was making a lot of stuff. And, uh, I said, okay. And we went through an R and D process and he came up with, uh, you know, a product that met our needs and we put in our first order and the first order was for a truckload you know, a tractor trailer truckload, which is 20 tons. <laughs> and, and let me just say this bakery, which is called Grayston, and it's in Yonkers, New York, to this day, um, it's a very small company at that time. So a truckload for them was like this unbelievable undertaking to create that. I think he had to take out loans in order to, to do that, didn't he? Yeah, he didn't tell me that at yeah. the time. And, and so anyhow, he had this, you know, he had this walk-in freezer and, you know, the product needed to be frozen. And so, you know, they, I, I think it took them several weeks to make up this order of 20 tons and, you know, they would make a box and stick it in the freezer and, uh, and then eventually they shipped up this uh, truckload of brownies and then our people, our production people opened up the boxes and, you know, they'd be in 50 pound boxes and instead of you know 50 pounds of these thin little slabs of brownie there was one big 50 pound chunk uh and they couldn't pick the brownies apart and what had happened was that uh they overtaxed this walk hot brownies off the line and the temperature went up really high and the brownies all stuck together and uh so pulling them apart they just came out into little pieces and we said well what are we gonna do with 20 tons of little brownie pieces and that's how the flavored chocolate fudge brownie was created which is chocolate ice cream with little chunks of brownies in it and that became an incredibly popular flavor and we're selling it to this day and we're continuing to buy millions and millions of dollars a year of uh, brownies, little brownie pieces now from, from Grayston. Yeah. yeah, Grayston, for anyone who's interested, they have a website. They, they uh, have taken over the course of their life uh, thousands of people uh, from welfare and jail to work who then go on to have uh, other other jobs as well and it's it's one of the great models uh in the country for doing that and to this day over 80 percent of their business uh is is the relationship with ben and jerry's and um 
it's 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 really an interesting thing. Bernie Glassman uh, uh, went on to form an organization called Zen Peacemakers, uh, which does all sorts of things combining traditional Buddhism, where he's a Roshi and deeply schooled with love and compassion for all living beings, which includes uh, you know suffering people, and uh, his website, and he can explain it a lot better than I can, but. That that's definitely one of the. I don't think there's any other business that that would have uh, number one suggested that with him, and number two uh, made that adjustment when they sent you the wrong, the wrong stuff. Now I had read somewhere that you um, don't have the same sense of smell as normal people, and it's harder for you to taste things, and that's one of the reasons you created these ice creams with a bunch of textures and chunks in them, like cookie dough and brownies is that true or is that mythology no that's absolutely true i have a very very compromised sense of smell i can smell something slightly every once in a while and um you know your sense of taste is very associated with your sense of smell so if you don't have a sense of smell uh you don't taste things uh the same way other people do and in order for me to taste something it has to be very very highly flavored and uh so that's why the ice cream came out to be so highly flavored and you know if you have a sensory deficiency you tend to compensate it with a uh, a heightened uh with with other heightened senses and for me that other heightened sense is mouth feel mm. So texture is very, very important for me. And for me, what I value is texture contrast. Uh, so what we, what, what that led to was a very smooth, creamy ice cream punctuated with huge, crunchy, or chewy chunks. So... Do you do any spiritual practice? You, you Again, you seem to exude this set of values that's really quite vivid and associated with uh, movements, religions, organizations, and yet you're very much an individual. But I, have you have you identified with any particular uh, practice that, that helps uh, keep you centered and moving forward with a smile on your face? No, uh, I don't have any kind of uh, spiritual or religious practice uh, <laughs> I, I, although you know I I did get a tractor and I have uh, you know about 20 acres of uh, field uh, that I used to mow with the tractor and and it did occur to me that you know all those farmers that you see running these big machines, mowing their fields or harvesting or whatever, the, they're meditating. Mm, <laughs> you yes. know, there's nothing else you can do as <laughs> yes. your tractor is driving along at, you know, half a mile an hour <laughs> on this long field all day. Uh, you know, you're, you're getting, you're, you're in a zone. No, I actually, Last December, visited um, Chris Christopherson in, in, in Hawaii, and, and he has a tractor that he got 
specifically for that reason that he said when when he's stressed out that's what he does is he goes out and of course he also likes the idea that no one can phone him but but i i uh, there there is something about uh, any anything that takes you away from uh the chatter inside your head counts um before we move on to more about the, the political world which i really want to talk to you about just t tell me how you feel about the Grateful Dead. I know, obviously, you named an ice cream, Cherry Garcia. I know you listen to a lot of their music. You've got a photo of you and, and Jerry Garcia in your in, in your in your home. What 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 do they mean to you? Uh, I got into the Dead when I was in uh, college. Uh, I didn't stay in college for very long, but it was during those years and. Um, you know, I was uh, kind of lost and uh, searching, and the the music and the lyrics of the Grateful Dead, especially their early albums, uh, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead, were very meaningful for me. Uh, uh, to me, they embodied uh, a life philosophy uh you know of of essentially uh care care for others um and uh you know a sense of joy um a sense of compassion and uh you know i mean i'm thinking of songs like box of rain and ripple hmm. and uh so 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 they, they were just, uh, they, they helped me a lot during, uh, you know, during some difficult and, and dark times. And, and, you know, the whole, I mean, the dead, they were, of course, a lot more than uh, just music. They were, they were a, a community and, uh, and a, you know, kind of a, a life philosophy that was, you know, probably, I mean, one of, one of the best examples of it is uh, that they were the first ever of what I think is still only a very few music groups that encouraged fans to come to their shows and tape the music and share the music with people for free. Uh you know, totally undercutting uh, record sales. And uh, their philosophy was always that the music is free. And they... Well, well, in fairness to reality, the concert tickets were not free. No, the concert tickets were not free, although my understanding is that they started off in San Francisco and there were a whole lot of free shows Yes, uh, in San Francisco in, in the early days. Um... So, uh, you know, and they, they, they embraced uh, the community of, of fans that I guess were a lot of people, you know, I mean, I never, you know, spent my days following the dead around, uh, but uh, there were a whole lot of people that were following them around probably for the same reason that, that I liked them was that they were, a, a loving, generous, uh, caring force. 
So, and just one one more Ben and Jerry's question I, I, that I forgot, which is that, so at some point in the 90s, I think it is, you create an ice cream called Wavy Gravy. And obviously you're looking for great ice creams, but you chose somebody that's very well known for his presence at Woodstock, kind of a hippie icon who created the Hog Farm. H- how did that come about? And, and, and what is your assessment of the Wavy Gravy experience? Well, first, just let me correct the record on, on Cherry Garcia, you know, that Cherry Garcia was a suggestion from a customer. Uh, we got an anonymous postcard that said, uh, we're real deadheads and we're Ben and Jerry's fans and you should come out with a flavor called Cherry Garcia because it would be a real hoot for the fans and dead paraphernalia always sells. And, uh, you know, Jerry and I were reading every piece of consumer mail that came in at the time, and we saw that, and I said, yeah, great idea. We've got to do this. I mean, and, and it was an opportunity for me to come up with a flavor that would be a tribute to Jerry Garcia and the dead. And, uh, you know, it took me uh, – over two years to come up with a flavor that uh, I felt would be worthy of him. It's a great flavor. It is. Uh, it, uh, to this day, it's it's in the top three. You know, sometimes it's the it's the best selling flavor. Sometimes it goes down to number two, three, but it is consistently probably the best selling flavor of all time uh, for Ben and Jerry's. Um, and in terms of wavy gravy. Uh, did, he, did he know? Did you contact him about it? I mean, did he approve of this, uh, or just he just lived with it? You know, I I that was a situation where I I came up with this idea that we should have a flavor called wavy gravy, and the reason why I wanted a flavor called wavy gravy was because I thought that wavy was. Uh, the best example I knew of someone who had taken 60s values and uh, brought them into the 90s, uh, you know, with his work with uh, Seva, which was uh, which was doing cataract operations uh, for people in uh, the third world. Yes, and I will say for listeners of this podcast, we just did a rock and rolls with Wavy Gravy, so you could go and listen to it. Yeah, so uh, so I, I I thought it was just a, a great example of of taking '60s values and actualizing them in the real world. And uh, so I wanted to come up with this flavor called Wavy Gravy. Uh, I I needed to to ask his permission. I happened to have a friend from high school who lived in San Francisco, uh, who had you know met Wavy on several occasions, and we drove by a park that he tended to hang out at, and sure enough, he was there. And I jumped out of the car and said, "Hi, I'm Ben from Ben Jerry's. We want to come up with a flavor called Wavy Gravy." He said, "Wow, great." Uh, you know, if we could use, uh, you know, some money from the flavor to support scholarships for Camp Winter Rainbow uh, so that people uh, who didn't have enough money could could get to this summer camp that Wavy had started, uh, he'd really love to do it. And uh, we worked it out and 
we were trying to come up with a flavor that utilized uh, as much products from the rainforest as possible because recently it had been shown that the rainforest uh, was the lungs of the world and it was being destroyed and that you know if you could uh, provide a market for sustainably harvested rainforest stuff that would provide a viable economic reason to keep the rainforest alive so the product we found was brazil nuts and uh so we were grinding them up and, and making them into brazil nut butter uh discovered that it it was a good a good idea for using rainforest stuff but it didn't taste that good so <laughs> so we added cashew butter to it uh which also came from uh reforested rainforest areas and uh added a chocolate hazelnut swirl and chopped roasted almonds and it was a great flavor in the world's first tie-dye container and um and 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 wavy you know came up with a little quote for the for the side of the container that uh was you know a typical wavyism that uh the 90s are the 60s standing on your head <laughs> excellent thank you so let's now just talk about what you've been doing in the last several years which is what is stamp stampede and uh how is it going to make our lives better well, you know, uh, a whole bunch of years ago, uh, it occurred to me, as it did to a whole bunch of other people, that uh, the root cause of most of the problems with our government, with the way our government runs, is uh, money and politics, that the Supreme Court ruled that uh, money is the same thing as free speech. Obviously, it's not, but the Supreme Court decided that money is free speech, and therefore people can contribute as much money as they want to uh, politicians, that you can't regulate how much money politicians can spend or how much money people can contribute or at least corporations. And um, so, you know, I was aware of that, but thought that it was impossible to do anything about it because in order to uh, overturn a Supreme Court ruling, the only way to do it is to pass a constitutional amendment. And I knew that that was kind of tough. But uh, then when the Occupy movement uh, sprung up pretty much overnight, uh, it became clear to me that it is possible to uh, develop uh, a strong enough movement to pass a constitutional amendment, uh, especially in today's Internet age. You know, uh, the, the effort to pass a constitutional amendment to get money out of politics is really the first amendment movement that's happened since the dawn of the internet age and already there's 16 states that have voted in favor of amending the constitution to get money out of politics 
So there's a big movement that's uh, focused on doing that, getting money out of politics so that, uh, you know, so that the country goes back to the way it was supposed to be, that it's uh, one person, one vote, and that the politicians actually represent the people as opposed to the situation it is right now where politicians represent the people who fund their elections. Uh, they're essentially bought and paid for. So uh, a whole bunch of organizations like People for the American Way and Common Cause and uh, Public Citizen, uh, Public Campaign, uh, are working on getting this amendment passed. And another part of this movement is the organization I run called the Stamp Stampede. And uh, what the Stampede is, is a grassroots effort of over 50,000 Americans now that are rubber stamping paper currency with stamps that say uh, stamp money out of politics or not to be used for bribing elect for bribing politicians. So it is designed to be a massive, ongoing, consistent demonstration of overwhelming public demand to uh, get money out of politics. And, you know, uh, it's working. I mean, you know, not just what the stampede is doing, but the movement in general, you know, just about every Democratic presidential candidate uh, has come out in favor of this amendment. And uh, several of the Republican candidates uh, have come out in favor of the amendment and getting money out of politics uh, as well. Yeah, ironically, even Donald Trump's rhetoric refers to the corrupting power of money. Not that I'm for him, but that is one thing he's actually useful on. Yeah, and, and really what we need to do in order to accomplish the changes that are needed is to work together with uh, anybody any organization that agrees with a particular change that we're trying to make. So, I mean, I was recently on the phone with uh, Grover Norquist about uh, trying to get money out of the Pentagon budget. Uh, Grover Norquist is a very influential conservative who's uh, asked Republicans and others to sign a pledge saying they'll never raise taxes. He's considered one of the kind of pulls to the right on the Republican Party on those kinds of issues. Right. So I don't agree with him on a whole lot of stuff, but there's one area that I do agree with him on. Well, I mean, there's actually a couple. I mean, it, you know, he wants to get money out of the Pentagon because he realizes it's a waste of taxpayers money. And he also wants to end mass incarceration. So, mm -hmm. I mean, those are both issues that are really big in the progressive community. Yeah. Big moral issues. Yeah. And where we can find common ground with people on the right, uh, we need to do it because it's the only way we're ever going to get anything done. What do you think uh, did and didn't work about the Occupy movement? You and I were both part of a, I mean, you invited me to be part of your group, uh, uh, the Occupy Money Group, which ended up not really taking off because of the complexities of Occupy, but on reflection now, a few years later, what 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 are your thoughts about it? What what was good and what didn't work about it? Well, I mean, 
the big, amazing, positive contribution of the Occupy movement was that they were able to get the issue of economic disparity into the public debate, uh, into the public consciousness. You know, there had been, before Occupy, there had been a myriad of uh, nonprofit organizations, very well funded, that had spent over the course of the last, I don't know, 10 years, collectively hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get this issue of economic disparity of 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 all this wealth going to the top one percent uh at the expense of everybody else into the public debate and eventually to change it and what they had been trying to do for a decade occupy was able to do in two weeks right they are the 99 percent and it is still in the public debate and laws are already being changed uh, because of that impetus. I have no doubt that uh, this movement to, to raise the minimum wage, uh, the fight for 15, uh, is be, it's, in, it's happened because uh, of the fire that Occupy lit. Uh, so that's the real positive part of it. And <laughs> it, it occurred in the first two weeks of the movement. Uh, you know, the, the negative part of it was that the, there was no structure. Um, it was, you know, it was designed to be a very flat, uh, non hierarchical, uh, organization. And, uh, it was, it was, uh, run in a direct democracy model of general assemblies where, uh, you know, anybody had the right to, uh, decide and all decisions were made by, uh, consensus. And, you know, what happened was the structure was set up for, a group of 200 people that was occupying a park in New York City. And the structure actually worked pretty well for a group of 200 people in a park. They did not expect <laughs> that it was going to become a national and worldwide movement. Uh, and, and so it didn't have the, the infrastructure that was necessary for it to uh, last. Um, but there were a lot of people that were part of Occupy that uh, that became empowered through Occupy, that learned about uh, a lot of the problems and in the society, uh, but they also learned about a need for structure and infrastructure. So those those there there's a bunch of people who were brought into the Occupy movement that are still activists today that are working in a more long-term uh, structured way. You know, the other thing that uh, is clear to me about Occupy is that the Black Lives Matter movement is structured 
very in very much the same way as Occupy. Mm. Uh, there really are no leaders. Well, there's no national leaders of the uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement. There's no infrastructure. Uh, it's a network, uh, which is really a new type of structure uh, that you know has been facilitated because of the internet. And uh, clearly, the Black Lives Matter movement has been incredibly successful, uh, just as Occupy Wall Street was uh, really successful. Um, so it, you know, it was an antecedent uh, to that. Just to to turn the corner in the conversation again um you had said to me that at some point a few years ago you decided that you were going to lower expectations for you and and that and that that's worked out well for you what did you mean by that well i think uh you know for for the uh for the first part of my life uh i was very focused on, uh, I had very, very high expectations of myself and of the business. And I was very uh, critical uh, of myself and of the business. And, uh, you know, I didn't dwell on the things that were going well. I dwelled on the things that were going poorly. And, uh, you know, Jerry had often mentioned that, you know, it, it was kind of good for the business because I'd always be focusing on what needed to be focused on in order to improve things. Uh, but it was bad for my personal life. Uh, you know, that if you run, you know, if you, if, if you're, personal life is based on focusing on what's not going well it's you know it's it's not particularly enjoyable um and so uh for my personal life uh you know i, I don't know if this carries over that much into your professional life but for my personal life i decided to lower my expectations and you know the beautiful thing about lowering your expectations is that if you lower them enough <laughs> quite often you exceed them yes <laughs> <laughs> and that is a really nice feeling i you know i mean i think my daughter uh aretha who's 25 i think that you know, she doesn't suffer from having really high expectations. She, you know, and and she's really happy. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I think I think for personal happiness, uh, it's really good to expect less and exceed what you expect. Uh, you know, so I started that life philosophy. That was going really well. And then I added uh, a corollary to it which is assume the best that uh you know you've got your expectations low that's good you're not you're not expecting much and 
you know, whenever you're doing something, uh, you know, oftentimes people worry or they're concerned that it's not going to turn out right. And I've decided that until you find out that it's not going to turn out right, assume that it comes out right. I mean, what do you have to lose? Mm. I mean, if it does not come out right, you will find out soon enough and then you can be bummed. But until, until that time... Or, or make adjustments. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Make adjustments. Thanks. Uh, until that time, why not assume everything's going to go well? All right. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this. I thank you so much. Uh, I urge everybody to go on the Stamp Stampede website. Yep, stampstampede.org. You can get your own stamp and uh, start joining the the rest of the 50,000 people. It's probably 55,000 people now that are uh, stamping their asses, heads, or balls off. Okay. Good one. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny.